Well, good morning, everyone. Good morning. If you'd open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. We're going to be working in this text just all morning long. So if you'll find Matthew the 28th chapter, that will help you to center your thoughts on the things that we'll talk about for these next few minutes. And it'll be a help to me to know that there are folks looking in the Word of God and not just merely taking my word for anything, but checking those things alongside God's Word. It's great to see everybody this morning. Great crowd that we have, lots of visitors, folks uh, who are here with us from uh, lots of different places, and some of them are here for the very first time, and we just appreciate so much that you've come to be with us to worship God in spirit and in truth. We've had just some excellent singing, I appreciate all those good selections that Robbie made as we're just singing from the Psalms this morning, and just a wonderful day to be able to come together and glorify God and encourage one another. Let's talk about Matthew, the 28th chapter. I want to just get right to it. Begin with me in verse number 16. This is Jesus And he's with his apostles in Matthew 28. And in verse 16, the Bible says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now those are some of the most famous words in all of the New Testament. That marks not only some of the last things that Jesus would ever say to His apostles, but in a very real real way, it is also the marching orders of the New Testament church. It is such a famous section of Scripture that many of us can probably quote that stuff from verses 18, 19, and 20 from memory. In fact, we even have a name for these verses. We call it, we call it the Great Commission. Yet sometimes I wonder, I wonder how much of that we really get. How much of that really makes an impact on us in a day-to-day kind of way. You know, Jesus talks in these verses about things like authority and making disciples and being with us. How much of that has an impact on you in your personal life? How much thought have you given to the Great Commission in your day-to-day walk with Christ? Now, without a doubt, the 11 men who were standing there that day, they were deeply marked by those words that Jesus spoke. The book of Acts tells us how these men, they go forward and they do all of the stuff that Jesus talks about here. And I do not just mean that they went out and they became preaching missionaries. No, I mean that everything about them was shaped by what Jesus says in these verses. These words that Jesus speaks in Matthew chapter 28, it made the apostles who and what they are. And so I wonder, do those words make you? Do they make me? who and what we are. The trouble that I suspect sometimes that we have with the Great Commission is that we're kind of afraid that if I get really serious about these verses, then what that means is is that means that I'm going to have to go to some far-off scary place like, like way down in the Amazon jungles and rainforest, and I'm going to have to go and preach the gospel to the natives there. And so what happens is is we kind of hold Matthew chapter 28 at arm's length because there's this sinking feeling that if I do that, then that means I'm going to have to go and get my passport so that I can go into all the world. This morning, I want you 
to relax. I'm not going to try to sign anybody up today to go and be a foreign missionary. That is not my task. But I do this morning want us to get into this text and see what Jesus is trying to say about who we are and about what we ought to be as we seek to follow in the footsteps in the example of the apostles who Jesus commissioned in these famous verses. This morning I do want to unpack what Jesus says in the Great Commission. And to do that for these next few minutes, I want to do something just a little bit different with this passage. Since we are so familiar with these words, that sometimes in and of itself can really be a hindrance and an obstacle to us. When we just know something, we're able to just recite it and just you know rip it off from memory, sometimes that can hinder us from really seeing it clearly and seeing it with a fresh set of eyes. Which is why this morning I'd really like to take this text and stand it on its head. I'd like to flip it. I'd like to reverse it if I could. This morning I'd like for us to consider what Jesus did not say in the Great Commission. Because when we understand what Jesus did not say, then hopefully that will make a little bit clearer what Jesus did say. And that is the game plan this morning. I'm going to break the Great Commission out into four specific areas and let's give some thought to what Jesus did not say. And that all begins right there in verse 18. In verse 18, the text says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. I want you to please notice, number one, that Jesus did not say that He only has some authority. That some authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And so so that means that you have some authority. You get to decide what you want to do in religion and in the church because I've only been given just a little bit of authority. You guys get to do whatever you want to do. There's none of that in the Great Commission. Yet, by and large, today in the religious world, how do things work? Well, many churches today seem to be operating by their own authority. Whether that means maybe a convention is called and held and delegates are sent and they cast their vote on a particular resolution and they end up passing some kind of new law that says that women can now be preachers in the Lord's church. Or maybe that means that a council, they come together and they decide that they're going to ordain homosexuals as priests and elders and serve in those kinds of capacities. Or maybe it means that a group of elders might get together and they come up with what they think is just a brilliant idea that will really make the church grow. Especially since job number one in the American church is evidently to get more people into the building. We'll do whatever it takes to attract us a big old crowd. And so what that means is, is that means that rock music and praise bands, those are in. Acapella music, that's out. That's old fashioned, that's out. They're not doing that anymore. And then what about having fun and eating and all of that kind of recreating? That's a high priority for Americans today. So what we'll do is we'll build us some big multifunctional, multi-purpose structure where you can play and eat. We'll have a Starbucks cafe in there. We're going to put a big jungle gym inside this thing. Maybe even what we're thinking about is we're thinking here this particular time of the year, in a couple of weeks, December 25th, it falls on a Sunday. Hey, I think a good idea might, we're going to have a big Christmas pageant. We're going to have a big old kind of, uh, you know, have a big live nativity scene right here in our worship services. All of that. We're going to do what we want to do in the church. But I want you to understand from Matthew 28 that Jesus gives no such 
license. Jesus did not say that you just do church however you want to do it. That you just fix it and tweak it and modify it. And you overhaul the mission of the church to, to suit yourself or to suit the times or to draw yourself a real big gigantic crowd. None of that in Matthew chapter 28. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given unto me. All authority. Who's got the authority? Jesus has the authority, not us. How much of the authority does Jesus have? All of it. And you know what that means, just very practically speaking? That means Jesus gets to decide. Jesus gets to decide on everything. Not just in some things. Jesus gets to decide on everything because He has all authority. You want to do something in the church? Jesus has to sign off on that. Somebody maybe would stop right here and they'd say, Oh, come on now, Josh, what about that? Hey, stop. Just stop right there. Who's got the authority? Jesus has the authority. Jesus did not say, Now, I've got, I've got some of the authority and, well, you guys have some of the authority too. No. 100% of the authority in the church, it belongs to Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Lord. Jesus the head of the body. And that means that job number one is not figuring out how we can draw ourselves a big old crowd. That is not job number one. You know what job number one is? Job number one is we need to figure out what Jesus wants. We need to figure out what Jesus authorizes. We need to figure out what did Jesus tell us to do. I was talking recently with a good brother who grew up in his uh, throughout his uh, earlier days when he was a kid and a teenager, he grew up in a very denominational setting. And he remarked to me about how when he was growing up and when he went to church, he never heard anybody talk about authority. Never once did he hear someone ask the question, Hey, does the Bible authorize this? Hey, is there book, chapter, and verse for this? Hey, where's the authority for this? He never heard anybody ask those kinds of questions. And as he reflected back on that, thinking about how far he had come in his spiritual life, he was just amazed that that was never in any point, never was that considered, that there was no stopping point, that there was no boundaries ever set up. It was just a constant free-for-all. But you know what? That's exactly where things go. Whenever there is no respect for the authority of Jesus the Christ. And please do not imagine for one second that somehow the Lord is just going to sign off and He's going to rubber stamp anything that we do just because we call it religion. Would you turn back maybe just a couple of pages in Matthew to chapter 7? I'll only ask you to step out of chapter 28 a couple of times. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus talks here about people who do religious things, but they do those religious things without His authority. In Matthew 7 and in verse 21, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You see, just because you call it a ministry, or you slap some kind of religious sounding title on it, or you maybe even claim, hey, we're doing that in the name of Jesus, that does not mean that Jesus will accept it. 
In fact, Jesus talks in that verse, in verse 23, about workers of lawlessness. That's talking about people who are operating outside of the law. People who are operating without authority. All of that then means that it is not weird. It should not be seen as strange to ask the question, Hey, where's the authority for that? Where is the book, chapter, and verse for that? That is a great question to ask. When somebody comes along and they start making suggestions about, hey, how about we do this in the church? How about we do that in the church? How about we adopt instrumental music into the church? How about we have Saturday night communion in the church? Somebody ought to speak up and they ought to say, well, what does Jesus say about that? How do we know that Jesus wants us to be doing that particular thing? He's got all of the authority. Did Jesus sign off on that? And I know that many times when you're the one to actually speak up and voice that and ask that question and say those things, many people are going to respond and they're going to say, oh, you're just such a legalist. You're just so narrow-minded. But you know what? People can say what they want. When all of those insults are done and they're finished being hurled, the fact still remains, Matthew 28 verse 18 says, that Jesus has all authority. Not some authority, not even most authority. He has all of it. And the truth of the matter is, that's not just true in the church. Jesus has authority in every part of life. He has authority in your marriage. He has authority in your workplace. He has authority in how you act at school. Jesus has all authority over your whole life. But I am keeping things kind of tightly focused here this morning. Because in church, it seems... People don't really want to talk about this idea of Bible authority. People don't want to try to figure out the process by which Jesus authorizes us to do something. People don't want to discuss what Jesus does and does not want His church to do. People just don't want to have that kind of conversation. When people are not interested in the authority of Christ, I believe the much of that, much of that comes from the fact that they are not hearing what Jesus actually says in the Great Commission. In the same way, as you turn back to Matthew chapter 28, Jesus says, I've got all the authority, and then He says, go. Go into all the world. Verse 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. I want you to notice, secondly, that Jesus does not say that if going, if that makes you feel uncomfortable, well, well, then you don't have to go. Now, right about now, somebody's thinking, oh, no, Josh, come on. I thought you promised you weren't going to turn us into missionaries. I said that, and I'm keeping that promise. I know that. Let's just relax. The first thing that needs to be recognized about this passage is that this text is speaking primarily to who? Not speaking primarily to you and me. Speaking primarily to the apostles. They are the ones, verse 16 tells us, they're the ones who are standing there. They are the ones who are primarily commissioned to do this work that Jesus talks about. That said, we do follow the example of the apostles, do we not? Paul talks about imitate me even as I imitate Christ, 1 Corinthians 11 verse 1. And if this is the agenda for them, then that would certainly set the agenda for all the rest of us who are seeking to follow after Jesus Christ. And so there is some going that has to be done. And there is some making that has to be done. However, having said all of that, I'm not really sure why we've decided that what that means, when Jesus talks about going, 
But that means that we have to go all the way to Africa. Or that we have to go to China. Or that we have to go to Norway in order to spread the gospel. The truth of the matter is, most of us, if we're being honest, most of us wouldn't be very good at making disciples in Africa or in China or in Norway. And why? Well, for several reasons. One, we don't speak the language. At least I know I don't speak any of those languages. We don't know the the customs. We don't know the culture there. We don't know how to relate to the people in those environments. You know, the gospel always works best whenever it is related by people who know people and who care about those people and they are part of those people's lives. That's why, for example, on the day of Pentecost, there were Jews present from every nation under heaven, Acts 2 verse 5 says. And what happened from there? Well, from there, the gospel ended up radiating out all across the entire Roman Empire in the weeks and the months and the years that followed. Why? Because those Jews on Pentecost, they took the gospel back home with them. They took the gospel with them everywhere that they went. They went to their homes and they told their friends. They told their family members. They told their co-workers. They told their relatives. People who understood them. People who knew them. People who would be receptive to them. That's how the gospel always works at its very best. This thinking then, that I need to pluck myself up from where I am in the world and I need to go park myself in some far off place where I have absolutely no clue of who those people are or what they're all about and I can't even talk to them because I don't even talk the language. This idea that that's this great idea, I'm not really sure that that always is the best idea. Now certainly, certainly there are some cultures where nobody knows anybody over there. And so somebody, I guess, is going to have to be first. Somebody's going to have to go over there. Somebody's going to have to take it upon themselves to learn that language and to learn that culture so that they can take the gospel of Jesus and go to those people. I always think about the Apostle Paul. Paul said that's exactly what he preferred to do. He preferred to go to virgin territory, to places where there wasn't already a church established, Romans 15, verses 20 and following. And you know what? We have people like that today. And we have people who do that today. And I say, God bless them. I'm so thankful that we have good brothers who are willing to do that. But most of us, again, let's be honest, most of us, it's not something we can do. It's not something we're ever going to be in a position to do. To give up our jobs, to pack up our families. I think about the Hamiltons trying to pack five kids and taking them all the way to Africa. It's crazy to me to think about that. But to go to some strange place and try to do this? And so what happens is we have those kinds of thoughts in our mind and we read Matthew 28 and in verse 19 and we come to the conclusion then that, well, since I don't have to board a plane and go off to Zimbabwe, then I guess I just don't have to go and make disciples at all. Well, wait a minute. Please do not think that you now have found a loophole and you've got your out and you don't have to do anything here. You can go and make disciples without having to get a passport. You understand that? The going that you can do, it may just be going next door to your neighbor's house. It may be going inside your very own home. Because the truth is, you do have friends and neighbors and co-workers and loved ones who are lost, but who are a part of your world, and they need the gospel, do they not? And so here's kind of the pointed question in all of this. When's the last time? When's the last time you tried pointing someone who is lost to Jesus Christ? 
When's the last time you invited somebody to, to come to worship services? When's the last time you invited somebody to have a Bible study? When's the last time you initiated a spiritual conversation, a Bible conversation? When's the last time you tried to talk to somebody about the Lord and point them to the cross? Somebody maybe would say about all that, say, well, you know, Josh, awkward. It's so awkward, so difficult to talk to people about religion today. It's uncomfortable to bring up religious conversations and talk about the Bible and talk about Jesus. And you know what? That's right. That's right. Many times it is awkward and many times it is uncomfortable. Yet I'm still having a hard time finding the loophole here in Matthew 28 verse 19 that says you get an out for that. And you know what? Maybe the reason that no loophole exists here is because Jesus never said anything along those lines. Jesus said that we must go and we must make disciples. That we must play a role. It's a small role, but it is a role in helping people to know the Lord so that they can then follow after Him and be His disciple as well. And yes, admittedly, sometimes that is difficult. And yes, sometimes that is awkward. But yes, also, we must do it. Jesus says to do it. And what that means is that means that we need to just survey our world. The, the world in which we live in, the world that we're a part of on a day-to-day basis, we need to survey our world, we need to take a look around, and we need to see who in my world can I influence for the Lord? Who can I influence, even in just some small way, to help bring them closer to Jesus Christ? And then once I survey and I find that person or persons, I then need to try to point people to Jesus. That's what Jesus did say in the Great Commission. And I need to hear that. And I need to obey that. That is a command. As I'm doing that, I do need to take careful notice, thirdly, of how Jesus said that it goes about this process of making someone a disciple. Look again at verse 19. In verse 19, He says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I want you to please notice thirdly that Jesus did not say that a disciple can be made by some means other than baptism. Now, of course, as soon as you start talking about baptism, baptism can very quickly become a very controversial subject with folks. But there is no doubt about it. When you read Matthew 28, Jesus positions baptism as being hugely important in this process of disciple-making. In fact, just notice what Jesus says happens in baptism. Jesus says that people are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That, that, That is a reference, actually, to that very first point. That's a reference to authority. Being baptized by the authority of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But... Can I sharpen on that just a little bit? Maybe point out something that maybe you've never noticed before? Your Bible may have a marginal note right there in the middle of verse 19. A note that says, not in the name, but into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And you know what? That that may actually be correct. And if that is the case, then what Jesus is talking about here is not just about His authority... But he's also talking here about a change in possession. Into the name of. That emphasizes a relationship. 
It means belonging to. That the goal of baptism is to transfer this person out of the domain of darkness. We're going to baptize them into a relationship where they now belong to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You see, as we come under the authority of Christ, He now he owns us. We become His possession. We belong to Him by baptism. Unfortunately, today, you and I know that many people aren't thinking in those terms. When we talk about salvation and what it means to become a Christian and to be a disciple, baptism doesn't really figure into that equation for a lot of folks. Folks don't see baptism by, as being the decisive moment when they come into that relationship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They don't see that as being the moment when they become a child of God, a disciple. No, most folks think that that happens by, by all kinds of other mechanisms. That I, I accepted Jesus into my heart, and that's when I became a disciple. Or somebody else says, you know, I, I closed my eyes, and I, I, I prayed this prayer, and I accepted the Lord into my life, and that's when I became a disciple. Or somebody else says, you know, I just have faith that Jesus is my Lord and my Savior, and that's how I know that I got saved. Well, what, 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 just wait right here. How can somebody be saved? How can somebody be a Christian? How can somebody be a disciple if they have not been baptized in? Baptized into the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And the reason I ask that is because that's what Jesus says makes someone a disciple. And if anyone wants to try to duck the force of what's said here in Matthew chapter 28 by offering up all kinds of Excuses. There are dozens of excuses and ideas that people have offered to try and downplay the role of baptism in God's plan of salvation. Like, for example, people are always quick to throw out, well, what about that thief on the cross? Huh? What about that guy? Lord willing, next Sunday morning, we're going to talk about that thief on the cross and be able to answer that question. But you know, before anybody goes and shoves any of those excuses and starts pushing Matthew's account of the Great Commission, pushing that to the side, would you please step out of Matthew and look in Mark 16? In Mark the 16th chapter... This is Mark's account of the Great Commission. Mark doesn't use the exact same words, but he does uh, tell us the commission. And he actually tells us a little bit more of what Jesus said on that day to those men. In Mark chapter 16, look in verses 15 and 16. In Mark 16 and verse 15, Jesus said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized, will be saved. But whoever does not believe will be condemned. Mark records Jesus saying, yes. Yes, you do have to have faith in your heart. You do have to believe and trust in Jesus Christ. You do have to have all of that stuff. But the way that you become saved, the way that you become a Christian, is when you believe and you are baptized. Period. Actually, let me take that period back. Exclamation point. Believed and baptized. Jesus did not say that a person can become a disciple without baptism. That's not in the Great Commission because as Matthew and Mark both bear out, Jesus commands baptism as a prerequisite for discipleship. Which leads me right back to Matthew chapter 28. Where Jesus says in verse 20, He says that once you make someone a disciple, you need to do more teaching. You need to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Continue to be faithful. And then notice this last line at the end of verse 20. 
And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Can you please make special note there? That Jesus did not say that by the 21st century, things are just going to be so secular in the world that I just don't think New Testament Christianity is even going to survive. Jesus didn't say that. In fact, aren't you glad Jesus didn't say that? You know, we live in a day and age where there are so many attacks being leveled against Christianity. So many things are said against the Lord and against His Word and against us, His people. And you know, after a while of listening to all of that, hearing what all the skeptics have to say and all the critics have to say, that can be kind of discouraging. It can really drag you down. It can actually just be really damaging to our faith. You know, we look outside and we see how immoral our society is becoming. We see how godless our world presently is. And we start to just think to ourselves, I just don't think we're going to make it. You know, there's just so many of them. And yet there are so few of us. You know, they, they, they command the media. They command all of the attention. They stand on such a large platform to spread all of their their atheism and their ungodliness. And the result of that is is that sometimes we start to feel like that they're just going to overwhelm us. They're just going to smother us. Now for some, the answer to that as a means of, I guess, calming everyone's fears is to maybe put up all kinds of surveys and statistics to show just how many people there are still in the U.S. and in the world who do believe in God and who do go to church and who still claim to be religious. And I I suppose maybe there is a place for some of that, but, but I don't really think that's the answer. I don't think that's what calms our hearts and calms our fears. Because the fact of the matter is, those numbers that we might could cite this morning, those numbers are shifting and they're changing all the time, aren't they? Just because a lot of people today say that they believe in God doesn't mean that there's always going to be a lot of people who say they believe in God. You know what I think is the best answer to the secularization that is going on in our world and the growing concerns and fears that we have about that? I believe the best answer is to just look here in verse 20. The best answer is to see what Jesus says when He says, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. The Gospel of Matthew begins with the announcement that God is with us, Emmanuel, which means God with us, Matthew 1, verse 23. And then the Gospel of Matthew ends with this very same announcement, Jesus saying, I am with you. And what that means then, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that the Lord's church is not going to be overrun by heathens, or by pagans, or by gay marriage advocates, or by atheists, or the Taliban, or anybody else. Because no one will defeat Jesus Christ. He is on our side, He promises. He is with us, is His words of assurance. We stand in His power and in His mind. And I will remind you that this very same Jesus is the guy who just a few chapters earlier in Matthew 16 and in verse 18, he said to Peter, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The very forces of hell cannot destroy Christianity. The forces of hell will not destroy the church that belongs to Jesus Christ. Now, that doesn't mean that the forces of hell isn't going to try, 
Because they will try. And that doesn't mean that they won't persecute us and make our lives just absolutely miserable. Because they will. But you know what it does mean? It does mean that the devil cannot and will not prevail. Jesus says, I am with you always. And those words were designed to provide tremendous encouragement to those men in the first century who were going to go into a world that was enormously hostile to them and to their faith, to a world that would push them and squeeze them and throw them into prison and even try to kill them. And to those men, Jesus says plainly, don't you give up. Don't you be discouraged because I am with you. I am with you in this great mission. And I want you to understand that that promise is still in full force and effect for you and I today in 2016. Don't be down. Don't give up. Doesn't matter what the media says. Doesn't matter what public opinion polls may say that everybody believes these days. It doesn't matter what our popular culture says is now normal and acceptable because in the end, when the trumpet sounds and the sky is rolled back like a scroll, Christians will be the first to meet the Lord and we will say, I knew, I knew that you would come. I knew that you would come to save us eternally. I knew that you were with us every step of the way because you said so. You promised it in the Great Commission. It is a remarkable and incredible ending to a remarkable and incredible gospel. I would say this though as we finish reading there. Those are the last words in the Gospel of Matthew. It is kind of an abrupt ending, isn't it? Go, make, baptize, teach, I'm with you. And, and, but you know what? I think it ends that way on purpose. I think it was intentional. That here's the teaching. Here's the marching orders. Now it's up to us. It's up to us to actually live it out. Jesus gives us the opportunity to write that conclusion by living out the Great Commission in our lives today. And so this morning, By the authority of Jesus Christ, we extend heaven's invitation, inviting you to become a disciple by having your sins washed away in baptism. Because that's how Jesus says that happens. All things are ready for that to occur today. That is, if you're ready to surrender to God in humility and in obedient faith, can we help you to take those steps today in order to become a disciple of Jesus Christ? Brother or sister, can we maybe help you to be a more committed disciple? Maybe you started following Jesus, but you've not been observing all that Jesus has commanded you. And as a result, there's sin in your life and you're not being wholeheartedly faithful to the Lord. You need to come back. Let us pray with you and encourage you in any way that we can. We're going to sing this song to encourage anyone who needs to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is your moment. This is your time. Why don't you take action right now while we stand and while we sing?